0: Hello and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and our clinical stakeholders in regards to organ and tissue donation and transplantation. Today I'm talking to Sean Jordan, the president of the Research and Planning Group. We'll be discussing the importance of our collaboration with our physicians and hospital partners to help improve the donation process. Sean has over 15 years of experience, and his passion shows by his commitment to making life happen. Sean, it's a privilege to welcome you here to the podcast. You know, I'll say this, man. I've been inspired over 10 years by the work that y'all been doing out throughout the nation. And, you know, you and I met over 10 years ago, whenever you all conducted a Lopez first family service survey. That's right. And so then we followed that up. That was really exciting project. And then, you know, I was formally more involved with the hospital partners, specifically the physician survey that we did in 2013. And then we did it again in 2016. And then we followed up with it in 2022. So We've had countless conversations over the years, and I'm just grateful to share one of these discussions today on the podcast. So welcome.
1: Well, thank you. And I'll I'll just mention as well, beyond the studies that we've done, you've always been great about calling me up with ideas and wanting to bounce things off of me. And I've always appreciated that interaction. It's great to talk.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking those phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) I know that, you know, we're already jumping into like the surveys and everything else. So I just want to kind of move back just a little bit because... You know, I think that some of the listeners, I know that y'all have been working with over 35 OPOs over the years, but there are going to be some listeners that are a little unfamiliar with the topic. So I wanted you to start with just sharing a little bit about the background of the Research and Planning Group and then also how you became involved over 15 years ago. So if you'll just start there.
1: Wonderful. Well, the Research and Planning Group is uh, the name of my company. We're based in St. Louis, Missouri, and we've been around for 40 years. And I have been in, around for 15 of those years. I started out as an intern and now I'm the owner and the president. So um, I've, I've had quite a fun trajectory there, but during that entire time, um, I have been working with OPOs. And when I first started working there, I had no idea what an OPO was. I had no idea what an OPO did. I just knew that I was a donor and uh, you know, willing to be one. So we, ha- we worked with Mid-America Transplant as well as a couple of other groups around the country. Um, and I got a chance to see this world, and I thought it was really exciting. But one of the things that several of the groups we were working with had, had noted was they didn't really have any national statistics on how to work with their hospital partners, the people that serve the referral part of the process or the recovery part of the process in the hospitals. And so we put together a, uh, a, a pitch and we were part of a competitive bidding process for a consortium of a bunch of different OPOs that wanted to get this comparative data. And we just got lucky enough that we got selected. Um, In that time, we had a lot of other OPOs express interest in saying, hey, we'd like to learn more about how we can work with the doctors and nurses and advanced practitioners that work with us in hospitals as well. And so we had a chance to expand that out. And that's how we got to that number of working with over 35 of the OPOs across the country over uh, the last decade or so.
0: But Sean, I'm curious, though. So when we're talking about it being a service specific to donation, how did that come about? Because actually, I don't even think that I really knew that it was only donation specific.
1: So, um, whenever you're doing a survey, you have to be fairly narrow in your focus on who you're talking to and what you want to learn, or else you're going to get a lot of data that aren't going to be very actionable. And so, we actually do a transplant partner study as well, where we talk to people on the transplant side of things, but the needs that are expressed on that side are really different. A lot of times, they're a lot more granular. They're a lot more specific to um, very uh, detailed parts of the process, whereas the needs that are expressed... For those who are um, referring cases or those who are working in hospitals on cases pre-recovery, they really are a lot more general. And a lot of times they're a lot more personal. They want really to be regarded as people who are part of a collaborative effort and they don't want to be so much just catered to as they want to be acknowledged. So the needs are really different. And in order to get good data, we have to make sure we isolate what those needs are. So that's why we limit who we talk to in that study.
0: Well, the other thing is, too, and I know that you and I have talked about this before, is that, and, you know, don't take offense to this because we've already talked about it, but when some people hear the word survey, you know, they automatically just become a little bit numb to it. And, you know, obviously, I know that I speak for just countless people as far as for the the surveys that you all provided and the feedback and the difference that it's making. But if you could share, like, what does make your survey so different and so successful?
1: Well, I remember we we hold these things called best practices summits, where we invite all the opioids to participate in the study to get together. And we invited some presenters uh, a few years ago, and one of them got up and actually said, you know, on my way here, I got all these different surveys, one from the, the airline, one from the hotel, one from the rental car company. Um, and I, I think it's a good point that we get a lot of surveys, we get inundated with them day in, day out. The difference between a survey like those and a survey like ours, however, is that those tend to be more transactional. So those are focused on What happened in a very specific service encounter? Whereas what we're doing is we're measuring relationship. What is it like to work with an OPO in the hospital? And what are they doing that makes your life harder? What are they doing that makes your life easier? And how can that be improved? So, the kind of survey that we do is not administered by a computer. We actually have human beings, interviewers that call folks up and talk to them on the phone and go through a conversational interview that's both um, I'm going to use some statistical words here that are, are descriptive, but uh, you know, I hope I don't put anybody off. They're both qualitative and quantitative. And I always say, if you have trouble keeping those two words apart, I know statistics class is hard for some folks. Um, qualitative has an L, and that L stands for listening. And listening is all about hearing what individuals think and feel. Quantitative has an N, and that N stands for numbers. And quantitative is all about talking about a group of people with descriptive statistics. So we like to be able to offer both of those kinds of data because we're talking to a really, really small and highly qualified group of people. And so being able to tell you, yeah, here's how they think and feel numerically. And we can compare that across the industry or the past uh, statistics is really nice. But we also want to be able to explain why. Why are they saying the things that they're saying? And that's really where the value of a survey like this is, because they express in their own words what they really mean by giving a score of an eight out of 10 or a seven out of 10 or something like that.
0: One of the things I wanted to mention was, you know, we've, represented ourselves and other OPOs at the Best uh, Practices Summit, which brings out so much great information being shared and things that, you, you know, you can include um, within your own organization, uh, things that you've learned, things that you want to learn. And so one of the things I also wanted to ask was when, when you're talking about the success of that survey, can you describe the overall survey process going from basically preparation, the actual interviews, and then the results?
1: yeah so in the old days we could maybe just get a list and we would call down the list and reach as many people as we could and then that would be that but that's not how hospitals work anymore it's definitely not how uh doctors and nurses like to work anymore they need some personal contact and so what we do is we start out working with the opio to build a list of people that are appropriate for the study we usually give them some criteria like you know they have to have worked on at least three donation cases in the last two years And if they're in a more outlying hospital, maybe those could be tissue cases, but usually we prefer organ cases for the kind of survey that we're doing. So then we ask them to actually go out and let these people know that we are going to be doing the survey on their behalf. And a lot of OPOs these days hand out like a postcard or a a piece of paper or something like that that has all the details about how they can opt in or opt out of the study on it. Um, But whatever it is that they hand out needs to have that information, but it also needs to be be phrased like a personal invitation. Hey, we really want to hear your feedback. You're really important to us as a partner. And that's really key to getting good participation because, you know, we offer an honorarium with many of these studies and it's nice for those that are participating to get some money. Sometimes they donate it to charity. Sometimes they keep it themselves, but it's not ever enough for the time that they're giving up to give that feedback. If that feedback is not important and valuable, so a lot of times the reason that they're really participating is because they care about what the opio is doing. They care about transplantation. They care about organ donation. They care about making sure the recovery process goes smoothly and they want to see lives benefited through it. So they need to be invited. They need to know that their feedback is not just going to go sit on a shelf somewhere, be in a data dashboard, but it's going to actually be something that's going to be used and read and thought about and ideally responded to. And so we we like to make sure that that invitation process is personal so that once we start calling they have no idea who the research and planning group is or rpg as we're often known um they they hear that we're calling it doesn't mean anything to them but they hear we're calling on behalf of lopa for example uh then they're much more likely to pick up the phone take our call and go through the lengthy interview that we put them through it lasts about 15 to 20 minutes
0: well i think it's a great point when you're talking about the preparation of it being very intentional and making sure that this is not just something that we're asking of them, but the reason of why this is being asked of them, because they're important, they're an important part of the process. And one of the things that, you know, you hear a lot, especially, you know, at the summit and things like that, is that, you know, when you're asking someone for something, make sure you're going to do something with it. Like you said, it's like just sitting on a shelf, you know, and I think that that's awesome, you know, uh, being proactive with that information that they're being provided. So. Now that you've talked more about the preparation and going into the interviews itself, I think that that's a really uh, important aspect of this because it is very personalized.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things about talking to real people, um, when you when you look at online surveys and in my industry where we do a lot of online surveying for hospitals and healthcare systems and other types of clients beyond OPOs, you sometimes wonder if the data are real. And there's a good reason why you wonder that because there is a lot of fake data out there these days. And. Um, I've heard estimates that as much as 40% of online survey data that's coming from professional sources is fake respondents. And that's alarming and that's really scary. But with a study like this, we're talking to people that actually have had real experiences. And you can tell because you can look at the data and they're talking about the things that are actually going on. And a lot of times they'll tell us things that we don't understand as analysts. And then we'll go and talk to the OPO and they'll go, oh, no, we know exactly what was going on in that in that situation. And we know why they're mentioning that. But the key to getting them to be that open is we also promise anonymity and confidentiality, which can be a little frustrating sometimes because sometimes you would like to know who said some some certain things, although you can often guess. But it also allows them to be a little bit more open if they feel like there's no reciprocity in what they're going to say. The most that we'll ever drill down on data is maybe saying what hospital it came from. And that's even then only if we can make sure it's not going to inadvertently reveal someone's identity But having that anonymity and that uh, confidentiality and that third party interaction really does improve the quality of what they're willing to say.
0: There's so much data. And I'd like to talk about, you know, how long that takes to compile all that information because y'all do, you know, the the grading scale and everything else. And you're also providing that real time feedback in some of the comments that are made. But I just think that, you know, it's such an amazing process for you all because, you know. You're actually having those conversations and they feel comfortable and they're able to share experiences. And also, you know, I know that it's an anonymous survey, but the thing is, too, is that sometimes, you know, whether or not it's something good or something bad, it's something that you can really address and hone in on. And so, you know, I think those are some of the things that you're able to provide other OPOs that it's benefiting these hospitals, it's benefiting our hospital partners, our physicians, and also those families that are being taken care of.
1: Yes. And, you know, Earlier in my life, uh, I actually began my career as a journalist, and as a journalist, uh, to write a story for a newspaper or a magazine, you have to go out and you have to get sources. You talk to a few people, and then you print what they said, and that's your story. The hard and fast rule in journalism was I needed to talk to three people, and if it was a controversial issue, I needed to talk to somebody for it, somebody against it, and somebody in the middle somewhere. Well, in in a survey we're doing basically the same process. We're trying to find the story. We're trying to see what is thematic of what a lot of people think, but we're not just talking to three people. Our minimum is generally 30. 30 is where we start to see things form into what we call a normal distribution. And it's where we can really begin to draw some inferences that are more than just what one person said or what's anecdotal from one hospital in in a DSA. So in order to get to that, we have to talk to a lot of people, and then we have to really scrutinize what they said. And we go through a process that's called thematic categorization, which is just a method of qualitative data analysis. But we look for structure. We look for common themes. We look for things that come up over and over again. And we also look for things that are outliers. So I remember one time in a study we were doing, there was somebody that was complaining about the opio coming into the hospital in black scrubs. And they thought that was just absolutely horrible that an opio would come in wearing black scrubs because of the sensitivity to, you know, black being a color of death. So we decided not to say anything about that because we didn't hear anything about it from anybody else. We just put it in the report where it belonged. We flagged it as potential outlier and let it go. The OPO actually came to us later and said, oh, man, we're so glad you didn't make a big deal about that black scrubs thing. We have no idea what they're talking about. We never wear black scrubs when we're coming into a hospital. That was just a weird comment. So you have to be careful that you don't take those things that are really salacious or juicy and interesting and make too big a deal about them. What you're looking for instead is, what are the common things that people have to say? Or what are the things that some people are saying and other people are not? A great example that we see often is we'll have some people say, you know, that OPO, they're really wonderful communicators. They communicate so well. And then we'll have another group of people saying, man, that OPO, they never communicate with us. So that disparity is what the story is, that some uh, representatives or some hospitals are, are making sure that information is going really smoothly and others are not. And shoring up the disparity is really what the action is.
0: Well, listen, man, I really appreciate this. Uh, this first episode, you know, this is where I really wanted to, to lay the groundwork for, you know, what the Research and Planning Group was, the services you all provide. In the surveys and in the next episode we're going to really get in more to a a granular aspect of things and kind of talk about some trends so thank you for being here today sean i look forward to our next time it's
1: my pleasure thank you
0: thank you for listening and thank you for being someone that truly cares about organ and tissue donation it matters you can register as an organ eye and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And remember, you're a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison, our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. our production assistant is Chandra Williams, and we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.